Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Dr. Benjamin Abrams, lecturer at UCL's Faculty of Education and Society and deputy chair of the UCL Sociology Network. He is also a Leverhulme Trust Fellow, chief editor at Contention Journal, and he has just published his latest book entitled The Rise of the Masses. So welcome, Ben. Hi, Laura. Excited to talk to you today. I'm extremely glad to have you here today, especially because as we're recording this, it's your book release day. So you must be feeling very relieved. Yeah, a little. I have to say, I, I thought that today would be the day that I would just pop the champagne corks and party immediately. It turns out that there's all this promotional stuff that one has to do, the most pleasant of which is, is coming on to talk to you today. But lots of emails and messages to bookshops and event planners and things like that coming up. But oh I will goodness. have a bit of time to celebrate this evening, which I'm looking forward to. Well, I mean, hey, if you want to start drinking champagne while on the podcast, I'm not <laughs> going to judge you. That would be fine. So let's just dive on in because on the blurb for the rise of the masses, you mentioned four mass mobilizations. You talk about the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of George Floyd's murder, the Arab Spring, Occupy Wall Street and the French Revolution, which seems a little random when compared to the others, right? So what is special about these four movements? So you, you tweaked something which I think is really important about the whole approach I took to the book, right, is that I wanted to choose things that didn't sit easily together. Mm-hmm. A really common practice in academia is that we choose a few countries that are next to each other and we say, oh, look, this is like a natural experiment. We're going to tweak some variables between countries and come up with some conclusions. Mm-hmm. My approach is the opposite. Uh, I'm trying to build a new set of ideas, a new theory here. And so what I want to see is whether my ideas are worthwhile in contexts which are as different as possible. So I want to try and test things across the span of time and space to see whether the ideas that I have hold up. I love that. The span of time and space. I mean, you're here ready to present theories of the universe, but specifically about mass mobilization. So I guess limited to human history at any rate. I hope so. I hope so. For yeah. Now. It's 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 been a bit of a funny one, to be honest. When you're coming up with ideas about something as generic as mass mobilization, right? Because at the end of the day, mass mobilization is just lots of people doing a thing. You have to kind of keep yourself constrained a little bit and not get overly ambitious. It's very easy to lapse into trying to theorize all of human social action because you think, well, really, anything could be mobilization, right? And so I've tried to try to keep myself focused very distinctly on this initial decision that people make to show up to something. So that moment when someone says, all right, I'm going to go and drive the protest that I've heard about or I'm going to go and join these people in the streets who are carrying, I don't know, torches and pitchforks or whatever, and really focusing on that particular element. But that's obviously a phenomenon we see in many different cases. And so I wanted to make sure that I was coming up with an idea that worked for French peasants and city dwellers in 1789 and for urban protesters in 2020. And that was the real challenge of the whole research process, but one that I actually greatly enjoyed. And so you just mentioned coming up with this idea that could explain all these mobilizations. What is that idea at its core? So the idea is basically composed of two elements. 
The first is looking at people's predispositions to participate, something that I term affinity, which I break down into specific subsets of affinities. These can be things like your, your social position, your patterns of activity, or things that are more like your political identity, your persuasions, your perception of injustice, that kind of stuff. So that's the first element, right? Whether someone is predisposed to choose to act in a given scenario. And I kind of filter that out into all these little bits. The second element, though, is what causes those decisions to converge, right? Why so many people would make this choice at once without being recruited by you know, existing activists or organizers, being contacted and told to show up, why they do it of their own accord. And so I call that process or that thing convergence, this literal convergence of decision making. And I pin this down as a series of social conditions that cause people to see protests as either more opportune, more important, or more permissible and kind of exceptional in a sense, where norms are loosened and they feel more able to do things. And I argue that the combination of these affinities on the one hand and these conditions of convergence help explain why ordinary people decide to participate in mass protest of their own accord. And I call that kind of fittingly affinity-convergence theory. The dash is the important part, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a lot of conversations with my copiers over the presence of the dash, and we eventually agreed that the dash is is a vital grammatical element. <laughs> it did originally not have a dash, so I've had to adjust to that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Very academic. And so what I like about your explanation just now is you did use this word protest because as you were describing your theory, all I could think about were marathon runners, right? Because, I mean, they have a certain sort of social affinity and they decide, you know what, I'm going to sign up to the New York Marathon or London Marathon or whatever, and they show up in their masses, right, to do this one thing together. But it was only when you said process that I understood, well, okay, there's a particular type of mobilisation he's looking for here. It's not about running in circles around the city. It's about something else. So is that where you actually draw the line between something like a marathon and something like the Black Lives Matter movement, like the Arab Spring? So I think one of the things which is quite interesting is that, and I'm fascinated that you chose a marathon, but it is the case that these kinds of events, you know, protests, compete with ordinary behaviours for people's participation, essentially, right? And so... This is one of the things that is really key about what I call these convergence conditions, which is that you might have an affinity to say, go and visit the occupation in Zuccotti Park during the 2011 Occupy Wall Street protests. But you're also going to have a predisposition to you know, go and yeah, run the, the New York Marathon or, or go to the cinema or do something else. Right. And so focusing specifically on protest meant that I had to try and think about what it was that took all these individuals with their very kind of heterogeneous interests and sculpted their participation and catalyzed it in favor of a particular cause at a particular time, often in a particular place. And that is, I think, yeah, the distinguishing element, really. Fascinating. And I mean, as you're talking, one thing I notice is you do sound quite British, right? And yet you've chosen studies that are all outside of the UK. Is there a reason for that? There are a few reasons for that, yeah. The first is at the time which I was working on the book, the majority of major protest events had happened outside the United Kingdom, particularly the ones that we were most interested in as scholars and that mystified us the most. So, for example, the 2011 Arab Spring and the Occupy Wall Street protests were both 
seen at the time as these almost inexplicable movements that at first we tried to attribute to social media. We tried to say, well, you know, everyone went on Twitter and had a revolution or whatever. But very soon after we realized that wasn't the case. And so we were asking this question, where did these protests come from? And that's also been a recurrent problem with regard to the French Revolution. There's this famous Mm -hmm. scholar, George Ruder, who says that the element of the revolution, which still cannot be explained by historians, is this mass mobilization component. And then I was lucky enough to be working on another project at the same time as the Black Lives Uprising, which meant I already had clearance to go into research on that. And it was such a perfect fit. And so the cases came together really, really beautifully in some sense. And I feel really lucky to have been able to explore all of them. I would also probably add that I began actually by looking at these two 2011 cases. They were kind of the original cases through which I developed the theory. And that was because I was responding to these events that were were very current at the time. I began work on this in 2013 when I was a PhD student. And so it had only been a couple of years since these things had happened. We still didn't understand them. And then once I'd built this theory from those two cases, I put it to the test in first France and then the US in 2020 to kind of really push at it and make sure that it did work and could explain these different scenarios. I really like that you've addressed this and you've come up with this theory because you're sort of taking a bit of the credit away from Twitter as the the cause of mobilising populations, which could be good or bad in the wake of what's happening today with with regard to that platform. But I actually want to turn to something else now because, I mean, we've mentioned that you did the French Revolution, so 1700s, and then also very, very recent protests and mobilisations that were happening at the time. So what methods could you use that would actually address this huge array of time short of a time machine, which I'm hoping you you don't have or you would be sharing it? Well, obviously, you know, the time machine project is maybe a couple of books later. I'll let you know how that one goes. But the yeah, the methods are really interesting and, and actually very fun part of the project. The grand framing of everything was something called comparative history or comparative historical sociology. And that generally involves looking at the historical material on offer, usually secondary sources and maybe an array of choice primary sources if you really want to go in depth, and trying to build explanations from that, thinking about the patterns in historical events and comparing them. But what I found with this project is that that kind of overview approach, we could call it, wasn't really enough. So I had to augment it. And this led to me developing something that I call in the book, Comparative History Plus. This is kind of stealing from some other really brilliant scholars who came up with the concept of Ethnography Plus, where they did kind of the opposite of what I ended up doing, but reaching a very similar place. And so the plus really involves all these other methods that I employed. And these were primarily the use of interviews in the case of contemporary protests, so Occupy, the Egyptian Revolution, and the 2020 Black Lives Uprising, where I went and talked to people in depth for, you know, usually hours at a time about what they had experienced or were experiencing during the protests. Then for the French Revolution, obviously, I couldn't do that. So I I went to the archives and I looked through police reports and diary entries as well as an array of other sources that were available at the National Library of France, which actually has all of the periodicals that were published during the time, so the revolutionary newspapers and things like that. I also used, for the the most recent case, for the Black Lives Uprising, I also was able to use live footage, streams, contemporary content as the protests were happening, because I was doing the research while these events were in motion. 
And so I was able to capture this very rich uh, understanding of what was unfolding on the ground at the time. And that's something I actually want to bring into most all my future research on protests, because I think it really strengthened those chapters and, and lent them a vibrance that I, I wish I could have put across the book. And so before we dig into that vibrance a little, I actually want to ask you about these interviews that you were doing, right? The ones you just mentioned. I mean, you are a pretty white guy, and yet you were doing a lot of interviews in the context of Black Lives Matter and also with the Arab Spring, where there's obviously a particularly interesting British history. So given that background and context, how were you able to build trust during these interviews and conversations? It's interesting, actually. The the least trusting context that I was in throughout the entire project was actually my work on Occupy Wall Street, which was decried often for being a very white movement. And mm-hmm. so I think we often think about trust as a kind of insider outsider. That's say you trust people that you think look like you or that you think you know, belong to a similar identity group to you. But when someone is an outsider, for whatever reason, you might say, oh, well, I'm not sure of them. What I found actually is because of the work I was doing, I had more or less the opposite phenomenon. So in the context of the Egyptian revolution, the fact that I was this kind of young white guy in Cairo Mm -hmm. talking to a bunch of Egyptian activists was something that they found relatively relaxing because there was Mm -hmm. a security culture at the time that involved regular surveillance of activists by pretty much anyone that they could potentially be near, you know, taxi drivers, people at cafes. It was a really scary time. Many people were being disappeared. And so peculiarly, as this like very foreign British guy, I was understood not to be a likely informant, not to be the kind of person who could be spying for their own government. And so in, in this kind of peculiar manner, my outsider characteristics played to my advantage situationally because there was this worry at the time that one's fellow countrymen could, what was termed uh, uh, honourable citizens, is the kind of rough translation, but it's kind of said sarcastically, who would be informing on them potentially. With the Black Lives Uprising, I think it was an interesting situation there. I think generally speaking, the trust element came for three reasons. The first was that I made sure to establish relationships with people before I had these initial conversations with them. So I wasn't just completely reaching out in the blue. I'd have some initial conversations, we'd get to know each other. They would often ask me how I felt about certain political issues, kind of gauge out where I was at on these things, make sure I wasn't coming from you know, somewhere like Talking Point USA to try and portray them in a negative light, these kind of things. But by and large, a lot of the people I talked to were first-time protesters. And so they didn't really have the kind of concerns about speaking to outsiders that you might see in established activists. By contrast with Occupy Wall Street, a lot of the people who had been first-time protesters at the time had, by the time I actually got into the field to interview them, become quite involved in activism. And Mm -hmm. so they had developed a security culture that was very cautious about outsiders. And that there were times where I was kind of taken to one side by trusted people in the movement and kind of grilled on who I was, what I was doing, so that people felt okay to talk to me. There was one person who accused me of being a CIA agent at one point, but fortunately they they revised their view within a matter of minutes. Clearly I'm not competent enough to be one of those. But by and large, even then, I mean, everyone was just incredibly kind and forthcoming and trusting. And I, I feel really lucky that people chose to share as frankly as they did and as honestly and openly as they did 
their experiences because really was nice to get a, a kind of completely unvarnished account of things. And that took time to get into that with people. Often you'd have multiple meetings, you'd hang out for a while first, that kind of stuff. But once you really got into it together, you were able to have really frank conversations where people just talked about how they felt about events and talked about what was going on in ways that I don't think I could have done if I'd done these kind of short answer interviews where you only see the person for maybe half an hour. You know, yeah. sometimes you need to hang out with someone multiple times over many hours to really get to the point at which you're comfortable having a conversation about things which are often you know, difficult or scary to talk about. So building that rapport. I really like how you divided this between sort of new first-time activists and longer-term activists because it brought to mind. So I accidentally got caught up in the Gezi Park situation in, was it 2011? It was a while ago, right? Mm. So mass protests in Turkey sort of in favour of social liberalisations in short. And so I was in Istanbul for an unrelated reason. I, was, I didn't turn up to go to a riot. That would be, I mean, I don't know what your theory would say about that, but that wasn't the case. And so I was actually there and able to go through Gezi Park as it was being occupied and see sort of the people who were there dancing and singing and sharing stories and being very friendly and welcoming and actually, you know, volunteering experiencing. Like I'm, at the time it was slightly less extroverted than today and people just mm. come up and they would want to t- tell their story. And the next day the tear gas came out and everything was disrupted. And I had this experience of, well, firstly, I moved out of, <laughs> out of that area in a different area because I don't like being tear gassed. But then for days afterwards, because there was a media blackout in the country, people will come up to me as a visibly non-Turkish person and say, could you please tell people what's happening here? Could you tell the outside world because you can get out, right? And I had that new protester feeling that you've just described and that they were less cautious about, you know, who is this strange girl? It's like, oh, as an outsider, we can tell them and then we'll take the message out. As opposed to later on when I started joining a lot of really hardcore right-wing Facebook groups to do research and I was immediately treated with all kinds of suspicion, mm. especially if I use sort of like, you know, Three syllable words that started to become a real issue. I've learned to never use the word intersectional. But anyway, that's that's by the by, because I want to get back to these interviews that you had, because you did mention their vibrance and these deeper stories. So, I mean, I'm sure they're in the book, but can you give us a preview? Like, what were some of these stories that really touched you? So uh, there's no kind of mould for them, to be honest. Every interview I did was really different because I was trying to focus in so much on how people's individual circumstances interacted with these large-scale structures. And so there is a huge amount of super rich material that couldn't all fit in the book, to be honest. I mean, I wish I had more space and more pages just to tell some of the stories in people's own words because they're amazing and they have such variety and depth. I guess one that really comes to me is I was I was talking to someone in the Egyptian revolution about the first time that they had ever gone to a protest that was on January 25th. So this is the kind of very, very first protest of the revolution. It's not actually terribly well attended, or at least not compared to the subsequent events. And they talked about the experience of marching with their friends and feeling this collective effervescence and feeling so helpful and so joyful and then being met by lines and lines of police with tear gas and live fire ammunition seeing their friends get shot and having to flee and run away and the absolute horror that they experienced and they talked about that in terms that were so emotive and so powerful that actually i mean 
putting them into text seemed inadequate. I tried my best to convey them in the book briefly, but it was a moment that really powerfully affected me emotionally having the interview. And I, I, I felt I felt very lucky to be able to actually share that with, with the person who told me all about it and then went on to connect that event to how it shaped their subsequent protest experience and how actually that did radicalize them, did make them want to come back and did make them feel that this was something they had to do and all sorts of other stuff. That was one that I thought was really powerful emotionally, but wasn't necessarily, you know, wasn't the most upbeat anecdote. One of the other ones that I was really, really lucky to to have that was was a bit more upbeat was talking to a Jewish activist who had been involved in the Occupy Wall Street protest. And she very kindly read me some excerpts from a diary that she was keeping at the time. And she shared these absolutely beautifully written kind of hopeful prose that she had clearly written down kind of the night of the events, talking about how amazing she felt and how it was so brilliant feeling that she was kind of together with everyone. And yeah, I mean, I got to hear so many beautiful anecdotes and stories in, in those interviews and they they really stood out. And what I've put in the book, you know, they read well, but actually some of the things that were truly affecting and truly moving, I haven't quite figured out how to communicate in purely textual form yet. Nekas, I'm very glad you were able to come on the podcast and share a bit of this because we can hear in your voice how meaningful these experiences were. And so it sounds like a lot of these first-time experiences, or at least the first-time experiences of protesting, were founded in some kind of hope. Was that a consistent story, a consistent emotion that you encountered? It was one of the key emotions that people felt, but not the only one. So sometimes hope was a big deal, right? This feeling that the opportunity was nigh, that we could accomplish what we were trying to do, and that everyone could assemble together and that they would win was absolutely pivotal. And there were moments where that was the central emotion being felt. So for example, towards the end of the Egyptian revolutionary period, what's called the 18 days in 2011, there was this wellspring of great hope that people were feeling and everyone described feeling it. And it was really central to people coming together. At other times though, it's almost the opposite. That's not to say fear, so much as to say a sense of threat. And the sense of threat really mobilized people at key times. So those moments where, you know, whether it's in the Egyptian revolution, in Occupy Wall Street, in the French revolution, or indeed in the Black Lives Uprising, those moments where the hand of the state asserts itself upon the protesters, people get beaten back, they get tear gassed in, in more modern contexts. Sometimes maybe they even get killed. What was really interesting is that sense of threat often mobilized people more. There was what's sometimes called a backlash effect of repression, where actually ordinary people showed up to protest to defend other people they saw being brutalized by the police, even when they thought it was risking their lives. It speaks also to the anecdote that I mentioned earlier, right? This person, after seeing these horrendous scenes, they came back and they brought people with them. And so hope is important. Threat is also important. But then there was also this third thing that was very, very important, what I sometimes call exceptional conditions or, or sometimes an exceptional frame, talking about the framing of social reality. And that wasn't necessarily about feeling hopeful or about feeling that something was threatening or dangerous. It was about the sense that the rules no longer applied to you in the way that they may be used to. So in Egypt in 2011, for example, it was generally understood that as a woman, you shouldn't really go to mass 
public events like protests. They were dangerous. You were likely to be assaulted. Similarly, you were generally discouraged from talking to random people that you met on the street for fear of them trying to hassle you or trying to inform on you if you were political. And there was this moment in the revolutionary period where those rules kind of broke down, specifically also in the, in the space of Tahrir Square, which is the kind of main square in Cairo that they occupied during the revolution. And people suddenly felt able to do things that they couldn't do before. And this really mobilized people as well. They kind of came to a space to participate in public life in this new way, or they felt enabled by this new framing of the status quo. And that allowed them to access these new forms of action they hadn't tried out before, like showing up to a protest, or maybe in certain circumstances, even using violence themselves to, to challenge the regime head on. It's really interesting. I love that idea of rules breaking down as well. Although it's interesting in that they seem to have become possibly even more strict afterwards, at least in the case of the Egyptian revolution, right? Mm. So I'm seeing a bit of a parallel in some ways between the social justice movements you've mentioned and perhaps the rising of so-called populism and populistic groups. I understand that you're part of a Responses to Populism project. So can populistic movements be conceived of as coming about in the same way? And what is that project actually about? So the Responses to Populism project is actually funded by the Believe Human Trust. I'm wrapping it up in November of this year. And so I'm kind of at the tail end of finishing up all the findings from that. It's about how societies, specifically the kind of actors, political actors in society, respond to the rise of populist rule. So it's not looking so much at why populist movements come about, but about what their consequences have been for various different social actors, things like political elites, grassroots movements, as well as kind of bystanders, civil organisations, people who get caught in the crossfire of populist politics. And it's it's been a really fascinating project, actually. It's part of the reason that, that this book had the work on the Black Lives Uprising in it, because one of the key responses to Trump in the United States with this kind of surge of grassroots protest, not just in the form of the Black Lives Uprising, but also in the form of this resistance to Trump kind of movement that got built. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I've been, been looking into is how that movement developed what its fortunes were, and also how it contrasts with other efforts to respond to populism by both grassroots groups and political elites today in countries like East and Central Europe, places like that. Fascinating. So earlier I mentioned my own experiences in Gezi Park in Turkey, right? And so after this whole area was, well, I mean, essentially flushed out of activists, right? The the movement was crushed. They actually bulldozed the park, from what I understand, as some kind of symbolic gesture. And I understand that actually your previous book, your edited manual, talks a bit about spaces and symbolism and movements. So was this something that also appeared in The Rise of the Masses? Yeah, so actually, when I talk about these conditions of convergence, there are three distinct categories that I use to describe them. The first is structural conditions. You know, situations. The second is cognitive frames, the way in which we perceive reality. And the third is spaces specifically. And that's because spaces are really, really powerful when it comes to bringing people together. Claiming a space or making use of a space that has certain attributes can be really powerful to mobilizing people. And one of the interesting things about spaces, as opposed to these kind of situations and frames, is that they can persist for much longer. 
a status quo, structurally speaking, is liable to be changed by regime activity or by other things. A frame may subside in favor of some other framing of reality. Mm -hmm. The thing about space is you can hold it, you can maintain it, and you can change its attributes. You can build something there. And so they become mm -hmm. these really powerful places in which you can assemble people, politicize them, get them involved. You can also build things that appeal to different affinities. So for example, Occupy Wall Street had this kitchen. So people came just because they wanted to cook. It had a library. People came to bring copies of their favorite books. They wanted other people to read or to participate just more generally. It had debate clubs. They built this whole kind of micro society in the square. This happened to a certain degree in Egypt in 2011 as well. It also happened in 2020 in spaces in places like uh, Seattle, for example, where they, they claimed a kind of autonomous zone that they started doing things like gardening in, having concerts in. And this brings a whole different kind of person into the movement who isn't necessarily going to be ultra political, but might have a kind of a separate, what I call a drive, a separate drive to participate, some kind of interest or need to which the cause or this occupied space caters. And so it becomes super important in bringing in this wider periphery of people. It also extends the time frame drastically. And so you can mobilize an enormous number of people over a longer period of time in a relatively small space, you know, a space that maybe fits a couple of thousand people can play host to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. over an extended period of time. And so it's a great way of, of mobilizing the masses without mobilizing an enormous number of people at once as well mm -hmm. and drawing a large number of people into your movement. As to why these spaces get destroyed, well, it's about ridding them of these characteristics that allow people to converge in them, right? Ridding, ridding them of their kind of exceptional opportunity or kind of paramount, as I call it, you know, highly important components that draw people into them in the first place. And so things like bulldozing the square, as you saw in Ngezi Park, erecting kind of large roundabouts and flagpoles, as you saw in Egypt, re reordering or clearing the park, as you saw in, in Occupy Wall Street, these are all ways through which you can kind of try and rid a space of its symbolic attributes that lead people to think more positively about it as a space that they might converge in. And that kind of ties, yeah, definitely ties into some work by my colleague Peter Gardner on what we call symbolic objects in contentious politics, mm -hmm. which is precisely about how physical things can be these immense reservoirs of meaning and import that actually affect how ordinary people act or are able to act when they are co-present with them. So inhabiting them or holding them or things like that. Fascinating. And as you're talking, it brings two examples to mind. And one is this idea of hostile architecture, right? Where they, you know, they put spikes and things on park benches so people mm. can't sit there. And this is just the upscale version of that, right? And then the second one is, Ramesses the Great, because I mean, you keep talking about Egypt, so now mm. my Egypt stuff is coming to mind. Yeah. And because he put statues of himself the whole way down the Nile as a symbol of this is my area, this is my reign, I am your god, and also don't attack me because I've got this. So mm. it's really fascinating how the, these spaces and these symbols sounds like they do contribute to, yeah, the duration, extending the duration of movements. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, the, the urban planning of Paris actually was kind of over the years as France saw successive revolutions and revolts was over the years configured in response to these frequent uprisings to make it impossible to erect barricades, to make it easier to move kind of heavy artillery and troops around the city so that it became easier to repress protests. And so, yeah, the structure of urban space is super important in terms of enabling or disabling protests. Similarly, in Egypt, they moved the administrative capital outside of the main area of Cairo. Previously, it was right near Tahrir Square. And so there were these very deliberate attempts to remove physically 
power from the people and mm. place it where it couldn't be attacked. And are there other things, other areas in which you can see the hand of the state in terms of trying to repress or prevent protests from happening? Yeah, so I mean, the state activity is really, really important in all these cases. Generally speaking, the state is much more powerful than anyone who is trying to protest against or resist it. And so the capacity for state activity to backfire and be highly influential and damaging to the state is very substantial. However, the state doesn't have necessarily the best people in charge of it, particularly when it comes to local police departments or detachments of the National Guard, local governors in the case of the states, or in the context of Egypt, you know, people who are leading troops who are maybe underpaid officers who aren't making good decisions, uh, these kind of things, right? So basically, the state has a huge amount of influence and generally very poor decision makers. And the consequence of this is that state activity is a routine explanation for escalations in protest, because people who are not really cognizant of the effects of particularly the use of state violence think that it is an effective way to dispatch peaceful protesters, whereas what it really does is it sets the tone for protests going forward. It encourages and legitimizes the use of violent self-defense methods by protesters against kind of state brutality. And mm-hmm. it also, importantly, means that the norm of the protest changes, right? If you start tear-gassing a bunch of peaceful protesters, the only people who stay are the ones who are much more comfortable with a high-octane violent situation. And so you create a situation in which the rules of the game, so to speak, in any given confrontation, are ones that encourage more violent response to police brutality because you have sent home all the people who were setting the norm of peaceful contact. As you're talking about this idea of state violence actually making symbols and ideas and movements more powerful, I couldn't help but think of that photo a couple of months ago of the woman in Georgia, as in the country of Georgia, Mm. holding up an EU flag in the face of water cannons from, I guess, state police or what have you. And that was, you know, I had never seen before in social media commentary people saying Georgia is a European country, it should be in the EU. Like that is something that would not, I think, have occurred. I mean, like Georgia, where is that? Is that in the US? But now people like after that symbol, it's like, of course they should be allowed in, right? Or of course they should be part of us. Of course they're European. It just really goes to show the power of these symbols and the ineffectiveness of state violence from the sounds of things. Yeah, no, I mean, using violence against someone is a really good way to make them look good, particularly if that violence is televised and mediated and seen around the world. It's especially effective when someone is employing symbols or, or kind of engaging, engaging in performances that are themselves symbolic. I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but I'll try my best. One of the best examples of this is the self-immolation of the Vietnamese monk, Thich Khan Duc, who you know, set himself on fire, basically, in front of media cameras. And it became this immortalized image that shifted hearts and minds. But And that's kind of an interesting example also because someone is using violence against themselves to represent Mm -hmm. a form of oppression that they are experiencing that does involve the active use of violence by the state. Very similar thing triggered the Tunisian revolution, the self-immolation of Mohamed Bouazizi. And so, yeah, there are some interesting rules when you kind of dig into it as to how violence and symbolism operate. It doesn't necessarily have to be the state that's enacting violence on someone to create an emotive image that then affects people's moods. But the state is the most frequent employer of violence. And so they Um, tend to be the ones involved. And so I'm wondering, as you're saying all of this, I mean, it sounds really interesting. It sounds like you've got a really good framework for understanding how these mass mobilizations come about. 
Who should read your book, The Rise of the Masses? So my hope is that the book will not just be read by by scholars. That's always the danger with the scholarly book. But I've tried to write it in a way that is really accessible. So I do have three chapters in some sense, the introduction, chapter one and chapter two, which pertain specifically to the scope of the book and its purpose, the academic literature that already exists and Mm -hmm. my theory and how it's constructed. And those are probably the most technical chapters you'll get. I have run them by general public readers. I think that they enjoyed them. So I think that's even that's accessible. But my intention really is that the book be read by not just scholars, but also the informed public, anyone who's interested in protest and mass mobilization, activists, people in social social movements, in civil society organizations, those kind of things. And also anyone who has a kind of country specialism or a case specialism in either France or Egypt or the US, be it for Occupy or for the Black Lives Uprising. One thing I will say that I think the book has that currently not many things on the markets, I suppose we could say, have at the moment is the level of detail that I've been really happy to bring to the description of the Black Lives Uprising. I probably had enough material, I could have done an entire book on that. But even in the chapters that I have on it in the book, I feel that I've really successfully given voice to people's experiences on the ground and depicted those situations as they were unfolding. And so certainly anyone who's interested in those protests, I think will really enjoy the book. Super interesting. And I want to ask you about this linguistic quirk, because I keep hearing you say the Black Lives Matter uprising, which is not something I've actually heard before. Maybe it's because you know, I'm not, not in the US and haven't really mm. done studies in the area. But why uprisings? I'm used to hearing it as a movement. Yeah, so this is something I had to kind of train myself into doing as I was doing the research. Almost nobody I talked to called the protests the Black Lives Matter protests or the Black Lives Matter movement. They all called it the uprising. It was remarkable. Mm. It was people on the ground. You mean who? Were yeah, t- yeah. The 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 ordinary people, not just not even mm-hmm. just the activists, the ordinary people who participated. They would call it the uprising, and people would refer to it as the uprising. There was one person who even referred to it as a revolution, although I thought that was maybe a bit strong. They would talk about Black Lives Matter as a cause that they believed in. But it became very evident as I was doing the research for this that the protests weren't really being organised by Black Lives Matter. This is to say there is a group called the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation that coordinates an array of local Black Lives Matter chapters in the United States. And they kind of have cornered the market on what is and isn't Black Lives Matter. And during the uprising, the advice that the vast majority of local Black Lives Matter groups, but also this the central organization were giving to people was stay at home. Black people are disproportionately at risk from COVID-19. It is the middle of a pandemic. Protecting Black lives means ensuring that you don't get this deadly disease that's going around. Mm-hmm. A similar thing was true of groups like the, the Poor People's Campaign, and I think also possibly the NAACP. They were worried about Black lives epidemiologically, primarily. Mm-hmm. That was the main concern, which makes sense. It was COVID, right? And so what fills the gap are these array of more organic structures, local activists and organizers, sometimes just random people saying, hey, I want to have a protest and loads of people showing up. And Black Lives Matter, the groups and the foundation, really only get plugged in about a month or so later after all of this has transpired. And that's when you start seeing the very kind of more orderly mass marches and these kind of things. This change away from more riotous protests that involves property destruction, that involves getting kind of beaten up by the police and then retaliating and this kind of stuff. 
That's also interestingly when you see a real drop in protest. It, it turns out that the tactics that get people on the streets, specifically with regards to the 2020 Black Lives Uprising or Black Lives Matter protests, specifically the time that there is the greatest mobilization is when the police try to repress peaceful protesters. And those same protesters respond by pushing back against the police and being willing to confront them, being willing to engage in property destruction to some degree. And, and there was this feeling of collective efficacy at that point, which showed, I think, ordinary people in the States that police brutality could be resisted in the streets in real time. And that when they got out the tear gas and when they went and beat you up, that wasn't the end of the day for you. You could keep going. And you saw this huge wave of protests after the burning of the third precinct in Minneapolis specifically, which really dwarfs the protests that occurred immediately after George Floyd's murder. And so that's the long and short of it is that's why I refer to it as the Black Lives Uprising. It's also important to note that people on the right in the United States kept saying, Black Lives Matter are burning down police stations. Black Lives Matter are doing these riots. And actually, the group is not responsible for that. And those were the actions of ordinary people who were mobilized by a cause that they really believed in, but who were not under the auspices of a racial justice organization telling them to do these things. And I think it's really important to draw that distinction as well. Hmm. In some ways, what you're describing actually reminds me of that comedy film, Hot Rod, with Andy Samberg. You know, the, the protagonists are walking down the street, there's some music playing in the background, they're getting their groove on, and suddenly other people join in behind them. Then another group come and they start breaking windows and setting mm. some fire and stuff. And at the end, the four protagonists are like, did we do this? Did we cause this? <laughs> what happened here? But I want to ask you, though, about what stops movements and what potentially stops movements from happening. Because I noticed that three of the mobilizations you've mentioned don't end in guillotines. So why not? Where are our guillotines? Well, I mean, I think the guillotines really were an implement that was improvised during the French Revolution, partly out of mercy. They used much harsher methods before the guillotines came out. It was deemed. I love this pro pro guillotine movement is what yeah. I'm hearing. Here. It was deemed. It was deemed much more humane. Yeah, you know, previously you would have these really horrifying methods of public execution that were employed, mm-hmm. and so the idea of the guillotine is that it was this enlightened, humane way through which the revolutionary state could carry out its executions. But that small semantic point aside, yeah. What What's interesting is actually the people who end up doing most of the guillotines in revolutionary France, also aren't from the, the street movements that propelled the revolution. They are their elites who've managed to gain a hold of the popular movement and, and manipulate it for their own purposes. And this is a pattern that you do often see in protests. Some people would argue that in Egypt, in the aftermath of the revolution, a great deal of people who were originally involved in spontaneous protests got remobilized by the apparatus of the state and state affiliated movements against the against the Morsi presidency in a movement that ultimately led to Abdel Fattah Sisi's coup and his accession to the presidency and so you do often see the case that when the spontaneous movement begins to fade the people that made it up aren't necessarily totally inaccessible they're just much harder to remobilize spontaneously and that's when organizers good or ill intention can kind of grapple onto that and begin to integrate people into other structures but that doesn't always happen 
Sometimes organizers fail to capitalize on the energy from spontaneous protests. This is one of the problems that the Egyptian revolutionaries saw, right? Which is that the revolutionary organizations that had formed during the revolution, as well as the civil society groups that existed prior to it, weren't really able to build any kind of cohesive structure out of the spontaneous protests that happened. Uh, it's the complete opposite of what happened in Occupy Wall Street, where this enormous infrastructure, which still fuels social movements in the US, has even supported presidential campaigns, got built during this time. And that's something I tell a little bit of the story of in the book, the kind of afterlife of Occupy Wall Street and how it feeds into all these different movements for racial justice, food justice, climate justice, these kind of things. But what I think determines the persistence of a movement after this moment of spontaneity more than anything is what happens during that spontaneous period. The bonds that get formed, the organizations that get developed, the way in which these affinities might crystallize into something new when people come into contact with each other. However, it's also the case that Sometimes societies are very good at disciplining people out of that. And one of the things I want to look at in the longer run in my research is precisely this kind of, I guess we could call it kind of revenge of order upon the masses where they get integrated back into daily life. They get paralyzed so that they can't participate in protests and they get stuck such that you have a very uncontentious society for a while. And so that's a fascinating that's thing to look into more. Yeah, <laughs> it's like forcing people into boxes and being like, you will stay there. Or you will not come out and protest again. Mm. Like, yikes. Very sci-fi. And so on the back of the book, on the blurb, it finishes by saying it could help predict the uprisings of the future. Now, firstly, I was like, woof, have, have, you rarely see an academic saying they're going to start predicting things. So huge kudos to you. But I actually wondered, I mean, what's the, the value of being able to predict uprisings? I mean, is that not dangerous? If I'm a couple of years ago, I'm Lukashenko, I'm like, oh, I'm going to predict that these people are going to stage a mass mobilization in Belarus. Aren't I going to get preemptive? Am I not going to be in that, was it Tom Cruise movie where, the, you know, he predicts oh, yeah. crimes or something before they happen? So, yeah, tell me more about this prediction of uprisings. So it's interesting, you've chosen something that I was very careful about the phrasing of for this, because could help predict movements to come is about as strong as I'm happy to have it be on the blurb. I specifically wanted it not to be any stronger for two reasons. One, because I think claims to be able to predict things are always a bit, you know, that you're kind of setting yourself up in academia to get told that, oh, you can't really predict this. Tell that to Fukuyama in the late nineties, right? Yeah, well, predicted the end of man. Maybe, maybe if I had, if I, if I have Fukuyama's profile, I might be able to try and make some more, some more <laughs> predictions. But in this case, yeah, I wanted to be relatively modest about what I was doing. But I also wanted to explain that it could certainly help predict movements mm -hmm. to come. And this kind of gets me onto a second point, which is. I want to be very careful about how much it helps predict and who it helps predict. And so there's something I say at the very end of the book, actually, in the conclusion. For people listening, he's actually just grabbed his book. It looks very nice and shiny and he's flicking through <laughs> the pages. He's going to read to us directly. I, I want to say this is a world first, you know, <laughs> author reading of this book. It is essentially, yeah. So I'd say, how could this theory be improved? And then I say, one option would be to further develop it into a more precise micro model of spontaneity. There's certainly some utility in trying to further understand the interaction of the variables in the book. But one of the core lessons emerging from the cases is that spontaneity is a dynamic and unfolding process that doesn't proceed in a regular 
easily formularized fashion that draws from all manner of constituencies and swells from multiplex socio-political developments. But even if such a fine-grained model could be built, whom exactly would it serve? And that's the, the kind of point that I really lingered on, which is mm. if I do turn this into a, a full predictive model, not just something that could help predict the movements to come, it's not going to help any of the causes for social justice that I, I personally am enthusiastic about and I believe need help. And it's most likely going to be of assistance to dictators and other kind of undesirable, powerful social elements who are looking to cement their hands and cement control over popular protests. So I kind of deliberately stepped back from going so far as to build the kind of thing that you could, you know, plug into a computer and, and start doing predictions with. But for people who are willing to do the work and think dynamically about a given situation, who are organizers, who know their environment, who want to try hard to build something, there's enough there to help you get to grips with, you know, maybe how you could be most effective. What I'm hearing is that if you've got a progressive cause and you need some help as far as setting it on fire, come to Ben for some <laughs> private consulting and he'll give you all the secret tips. That's what I'm hearing. Well, it's not far off. I actually missed the last bit, which is I, I did say, might the theory even be faintly helpful for oppressed peoples mobilizing in contexts where organizations are stultified by regime activity or wrought with passivity? Or might it be used to help social justice campaigns build truly momentous challenges to systemic issues? I should hope so, but to offer an affirmative answer would be hubristic at best. I can only say that for those who wish to try, I would be more than willing to help. And that's how I end the book. That's a beautiful way to end the book. And not just because you use the words hubristic and stultifying, which are fantastic words, and I guarantee would get you kicked out of every right-wing Facebook group. But a <laughs> beautiful, beautiful sentiment to finish that on for sure. Well, look, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you and where can they find the book? So you can find me on Twitter as at BDM Abrams. And you can also find the book available in, I hope, all good bookshops, by which I mean the increasing number that are gradually stocking it. They're certainly on Amazon. It's certainly in Barnes & Noble or Waterstones in the UK. Blackwells have it. If all else fails, you can go to the University of Chicago Press website. But I'm also trying to maintain on the webpage for the book a list of independent bookshops that are stocking it. And I'd really encourage you to patronize them as a priority if you're willing to pay the little bit extra maybe for shipping. Uh, it means a lot to those bookshops. The website address is theriseofthemasses.com. Easy, very memorable. Well, look, thank you so much again, Ben. And until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.